With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back to episode 11 of the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I am joined again by Brian Joyner of BP Boston and Over the Monster. Brian, how's it going tonight? It's good. It's not as good as it could be because this is the third Red Sox off day in eight days, which is hard to deal with. It is hard to deal with for us, but it is excellent to deal with for the bullpen. I was just thinking uh, before we got on this show just how how well rested that unit must be, uh, especially since there were a few pretty long starts sprinkled in there as well with all this time off. So that's a good thing. The bad thing is that uh, you know we're left wanting some more baseball, especially after that um little series up in San Francisco that was pretty enticing. That was a good one. That was good. And the Minnesota series was something. Uh, I don't think, you know, I saw a lot of consternation about the Sox losing one out of three to Minnesota, but that's fine. I mean, they're basically the worst team in the league. They're not the worst team in the majors, the worst team in the AL. But even the best team in the league against the worst team in the league is only going to win two out of three. We won them two out of three. That's fine. Uh, it just was a frustrating game. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's baseball, right? I, this is this is the most, um, you know, sort of infuriating sport for that type of thing. It's not like football or, or basketball or hockey where – if your team is just significantly better, you're going to go out and win every time. There's just so many factors. So many people have to have, you know, a good night in order for that to happen. So um, it, it truly is with baseball. I mean, the worst teams in baseball often end up winning like over 50 games every year. So uh, that tells you all you need to know about the sport. I could care less um, that the Red Sox lost that game. I think the only 
thing that was frustrating about it were, were some of the decisions that Farrell made surrounding that and some of the performances of some of the, the guys are a little bit alarming. And we're going to get into that a little bit more on the show. But one of the things I wanted to kick off with tonight, um, biggest news, I think, in Red Sox Nation is um, the results of the draft. The Red Sox uh, ended up uh, in a pretty favorable spot, 12th uh, position in the draft. Um, and they were able to land a pretty incredible draft prospect in Jason Groom at 12th. Um, our own Chris Crawford at Baseball Prospectus um, had him rated as the number one prospect in the entire draft. Uh, for those of guys, for those of you who haven't heard about Groom, uh, he's a six foot six lefty, um, awesome fastball that can crank up to the high 90s, uh, amazing curveball. Uh, change up that should be plus to plus plus eventually um, really just has everything he's only 17 years old he's from New Jersey uh, just a tremendous prospect but uh, he, he fell pretty far in that draft because of some character concerns which I found hilarious I want to get your take on that whole thing like what do you think while you were while you were watching the draft or following the draft about his tumble uh, while that was happening well I think that for a 17-year-old to be worried about character concerns is a bit premature. Um, I don't remember the players talking about, but Mike Gianella of Baseball Prospectus was talking about Mike Matheny. They drafted someone's uh, 17 who had their own character concerns. And he basically said something like, there's no way we can know everything that went into sort of the snap judgment that this person has character issues. And even if we do know they're young and there could be much more behind it that we know. The good part about it for the Red Sox, I mean, it sounds weird to say this positively, but it seems like when they drafted Daniel Bard, uh, way much lower in the draft than his talent level suggested. Um, now, obviously, in that specific case, talk about results versus process, um, but you can only the process and groom seems like a great player and on top of that i think that you would probably agree that the it seemed like the rest of the draft the red sox had was orchestrated so that they could sign groom yeah i i think i am totally on board with that point i Certainly agree with that. They signed a lot of players who um, they thought could potentially or should sign for well under their slot value in order to uh, sign Groom. There's rumors circulating that, and they're in all likelihood true, um, that Groom is expecting top five slot money and the Red Sox are perfectly prepared to uh, do everything in their power in order to give that to him to sign. But in order to get, uh, to to talk about that first point about his his little tumble and about him having character concerns at 17, um, I just thought that was ridiculous because anybody who's good at any sport at 17, I don't care if you're like the best person on your varsity team or whatever you are, like 17 year old high school kids who are good at stuff are assholes, and the fact that this guy not only is amazing at baseball, like. He knew he was going to be a millionaire in like a matter of less than a few months. Um, and he's known that for a while. 
he probably knew for a long time, probably since he was about 15, that he was going to be playing in the major leagues. Um, how do you expect somebody like that not to develop an attitude? It's it's insane to me. I you know I I don't, and uh, I'm glad that the Red Sox were in a position to take advantage of the situation because he's obviously incredibly talented. And the fact that he knows it shouldn't be a turnoff to an organization that should act like an organization organization that's great, and I know it. Um, and this seemed it seemed ex- extremely well done. Um, in you know you have to plan for contingencies, but to have the contingencies that if he's there, that you can then uh, move the rest of your draft around to make it more accommodating to sign him is the sign of a really healthy organization. And I'm really, it's really encouraging no matter what he ends up doing. This is really encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, they, they did do a lot to move some guys around. They signed a lot of um, late college players and also very, very late in the draft. They signed a tremendous amount of very high ceiling uh, high school players, or I say signed, but I meant drafted. Um, some really high ceiling high schoolers. So if everything does fail, they're not going to come out of this draft with nothing. If they can't sign groom, they're still going to be able to throw a tremendous amount of money over slot values to a lot of these late draft picks that they took. And hopefully they'll be able to persuade a few of those guys to uh, either not go to college or, or junior college or whatever it is that they're thinking about committing to for the following year. So I think that there's uh, there's really not a whole lot of downside for the Red Sox in this position. And plus, they'd be able to pick in a pretty similar spot next year uh, if he does turn it down. So um, awesome, awesome signing for them. A guy who has the potential to be uh, a true number one starter. Um you know, when I when I read about this guy's repertoire and I started reading a little bit more about him, and I certainly don't know too much about him, so I'm not going like, to pretend like I'm an expert, but um, he really made me think of um, the same type of profile and repertoire that Lucas Giolito has. And Lucas is obviously a right-hander, uh, power righty, but the pitch mix struck me as very similar, especially with that hammer curveball that he throws. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, I did not look at the pitch mix, pitch mix, but what another reason I think that the Red Sox will probably end up signing him, no matter the cost, is if they got to pick in a similar position next year, what are the chances that they could pick someone better than him at that spot? And I think it's very, very low. Yeah, absolutely. This was a, a fairly weak draft, and um, he was the biggest talent in it by a, by a long shot. So if he does sign, he's probably going to be a top five prospect in the Red Sox system and, uh, right and away. And he is a Red Sox fan, correct? I believe he is. He is. Yeah, they, they showed a little video of him kind of freaking out when the Red Sox uh, drafted him. So um, that's always nice to see. And hopefully he wants to be here and they get that done. So um, that was pretty cool. Certainly unexpected. Uh, I have to say I'm pretty pumped about the last two drafts. After that Trey Ball debacle, um, Ben Intendi and uh, now Jason Groom. Pretty pretty good stuff there. So I'm happy with it. Uh, one thing that I'm not happy about, though, that is worth mentioning here, and we're going to touch on this right now, 
is what's happening to the Red Sox at the corner positions, uh, first base and third base. Um, these were huge, huge, massive concerns for the Red Sox coming into the season with Hanley Ramirez. We didn't know what to expect from him defensively. Uh, didn't have a great year uh, offensively last year either. And then at third base with you know, the Pablo and everything, I don't even have to go into that in detail. But um, all of a sudden, you know, two months into the season, we were thinking, oh, this is this is going pretty good. Red Sox were first place. These guys are holding their own defensively. Um, they were both hitting at one point. They were both hitting over 300. Um, now the tide has turned. Hanley Ramirez is currently batting 135 in June so far through 10 games. He hasn't homered since May 10th. Uh, since May 10th, his batting average is just 231. He's got a 110 ISO on the season, so very little power there. Um, and recently he's been making a few errors, um, that I don't care what they say, that error on Bogarts on Sunday, uh, where it took one bounce and ended up in his glove and then he swiped it out of his glove. Uh, that was on him. That was not on Bogarts. And so I think that there's been a lot of things lately from Hanley that have been less than optimal here. Uh, what say you, Brian? Well, I definitely think the offense has been le- less than optimal and, I am encouraged, uh, even in the short term, by what looks to be a, a very clear opening of a stance, because he seems not to be diving out uh, over the outside part of the plate to uh, to just wave at sliders and what he just he's giving up on pitchers on the outside part of the plate. Now the downside of that is when Pat Dean at all were just hitting the corners. Um, and when he was hitting the corners and Hanley didn't take the bat off his shoulder, it was a strike. I mean, I think I prefer that. I, I think I prefer that if he's able to actually drive the ball in the inside half. Now, it's been so – it hasn't been long enough to see if he can do that. Uh, but if he can, it would be appreciated because he hasn't hit a home run in a minute. Though I should know that the last home run he hit, which was on May 10th, uh, I believe that was the one that went approximately a thousand feet. That was a crush job. That, that was, was that was unbelievable. It was. It's, it's. I wrote this on Twitter this week, and I, I really believe this. Watching him, and I hope the opening up a stance lets him see the ball for a little bit longer. It just seems like he's a total guess hitter, and he's bad at guessing. <laughs> uh, and and it's a it's a bad combination, and and part of the problem. Part of the reason it bothers me is I like him a lot. Um, he seems like a great dude. He seems like he loves playing in Boston, which is not the most common or not hasn't historically been the most common uh, stance to take. But uh, I don't actually blame him very much for that Bogart's throw uh, simply because he swept the ball and it was it, what, it was actually in his glove. And I think that maybe even six times out of ten, it stays in his glove uh, as he sweeps it around. Uh, and it's more – it's it's less that uh, I don't blame him uh, as much as I just think those, those plays happen. And ultimately, it's on the dude who bounced the ball when the runner was not fast. I mean, Xander could have done another hop. So you're saying Xander has to be perfect for this guy? I mean, come on. No, Xander's no, no. playing top-notch defense over here. He's just trying to trying to get the ball over. 
of course, I, I'm not saying he has to play top-notch de- defense. I did, I mean, it was an error on Bogarts, not for nothing. But it's not like, I mean, Bogarts, inex- I mean, not inexplicably, because he's amazing. But uh, he made up for that in this game alone. I mean, he's an amazing player. That's why he was mad at himself, because he just, you know, this happens to everyone. It's a long season. Uh, that was just a really conspicuous one. And uh, it just, <laughs> I think Lysander just stands out because everything he's done has been amazing. Yeah, so. that's right. He is leading the uh, the entire league in war right now, which is pretty cool. So uh, that's a good stat. But uh, let's talk Hanley a little bit. So I, I definitely don't share your confidence right now that Hanley Ramirez is going to get his power back on track. If he is guessing, I guess it's pretty good that he's been guessing so much of this season uh, and hitting you know, in the 260s still at this point. Um, that speaks to his true talent level. He's obviously a tremendously talented player. But what makes you so confident about this new opening of his stance, and when did you see this thing take take place? Like, when was the change? I'm not, first of all, I'm not actually confident at all. What I'm saying is that it he changed something, and he needed to change something. And in the very small sample size of results I've seen so far, he was, look, the, the pitch that seemed to kill him, just absolutely kill him uh, when he was going bad was the slider from the righty. Mm-hmm. It was just like he could, he literally, it would get to 0-2 and that pitch would come and he would wave at it. What it looks like to me is that by opening up his stance, what he's basically said is, I'm not going to dive at the ball outside. If you hit the outside corner, fine because it's very hard to do. If you leave it a little bit in, I'll be able to hit it. Now, if you leave it a lot in, I'll be able to crank it. And I think that whatever he's going to do couldn't be worse than he looked the last month. That's it. I don't think he's going to be great. Well, that's I, fair. I, I, mean, I we... really don't think he's like, – I, but to be fair to you, I have thought to myself – uh, often in a fantasy baseball context, is this guy? Is there a chance that he just is is going to be great? You want to hold on to him, and I my answer is no. I think that he's just too flawed. Uh, there's there's a fundamental flaw that seems to pop up that he cannot sustain hot streaks. But I think he can put a floor if he can put a floor under the bad times. I think his defense has been good enough that he can exist on this team, uh, especially in light of what Travis Shaw is doing, which is the next thing we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that, by and large, the defense hasn't been a problem, and that's certainly not something I expected. I thought, you know, coming into the year, it was going to be a nightmare. I didn't know how long it was going to last. Um, but bottom line is they've been batting this guy fifth pretty much the entire season. Um, and he's not a five-hitter right now. He's nowhere close to a five-hitter, and he's got to figure something out soon because this is the guy we've anointed as the DH replacement of the future for David Ortiz, um, and that's not going to do. I won't abide by a 110 ISO as uh, a replacement for David Ortiz next year. Um, I, I want me some Edwin Encarnacion if this is going to be what we get from him. Um, 
but yeah, it's it doesn't look good. I still think that there's more in there. And at 32 and a half years old right now, uh, for Hanley, I have to believe that he still has some really good seasons left. I mean, look at what a guy like Carlos Beltran is doing this year. I think he's got 16 bombs already. Um, granted, I think Carlos Beltran's a little bit of a better player at his peak um, than Hanley Ramirez is, but Hanley was a, one of the best hitters on the planet for a long period of time and certainly showed flashes of that last year in that 10-home run streak in April. So, I mean, is it really... It's not, I guess I'll put it this way, it's not any more unlikely that he can't do something like that than he can do something like that. Well, to me, it's not whether he can or he can't, it's whether he will or he won't, because we know he can't. It's just a matter of whether he will or he won't. And I think it is instructive, and I hadn't thought about it until you said it, to realize that literally almost the entirety of the good numbers he's put up for the Red Sox have happened in April. Yeah, that is weird, isn't it? You well, mean? it is and it isn't if you subscribe to the theory that the hitters have an advantage at the beginning of the year. Oh, right, yeah. And, That's a good point. And if you're a guess hitter and you're guessing early and people are figuring their stuff out, maybe it's a little bit easier to guess. Um, I, it's Look, that's just a theory, but I, I – look, whatever Hanley does – I think the Red Sox going after Encarnacion, and it sounds like Bautista, like those guys just want to get paid. And uh, they're they're both excellent. Uh, but specifically Encarnacion, uh, what, it, why not go after him no matter what Hanley does and then just have a similar but maybe more equitable breakdown than you have now with Hanley and Encarnacion as regard to Hanley and Ortiz, whereas Ortiz is almost always, you know, he's DH right. de facto. But in that case, you could swap them more and yeah. help him. There's really no downside, too. And I know Encarnacion has spoken about his want to play a little bit more first base, too, so you can kind of interchange those guys a little bit as well. So, yeah, I think that's certainly the ideal target there. But let's talk about the guy on the other um side of the infield in Travis Shaw. Um, just like Hanley, he's been struggling mightily lately, uh, batting 132 in June, uh, just 143 on the season against lefties, which is a little bit different than what we've seen from him. Um, we don't have that reliable of minor league splits, but at least in his time in the pros uh, prior to this year, he's been really, really good against lefties. And I touted that a little bit in the beginning of the season, and Ben Carsley uh, was quick to point out that you know, those are small sample size numbers, and this is a guy who could still definitely struggle against lefties, and lo and behold, that's certainly happened. Um, Shaw hasn't looked very good there, uh, which has forced the Red Sox into almost a Josh Rutledge-type platoon here uh, where they're sitting him against lefties. And I want to ask you, is this Josh or is this Travis Shaw more in line with what his true talent level is, um, or, you know, is this just a little bit of a, a cold streak by him? Well, it's hard to tell, but it's my instinct is that it's more in line with his true talent level at the moment. Um, and as we saw, as we've seen with Jackie Bradley Jr., uh, who we're going to talk about next, uh, he, you can be capable of great things in short periods of time and, uh, 
what you can learn to do throughout a career is just extend those short periods of time so that if you can do it about half the year, then you're a viable major league baseball player. Uh, I think that Shaw is clearly dealing with new approaches to him and, uh, and struggling and compared to Hanley, who is similarly struggling compared to how he did at the beginning of the year. It's the difference is that Hanley and because Hanley's a veteran, he's won a batting title. He's been around, you know, he seems to just like every game is the same to him. He comes out. Shaw seems to be wearing this cold streak on his face. I mean, the, the bunt yesterday was the, the low point of the season for him. Um, and it's just, it's, it's really tough to watch and it's hard to know. Uh, I mean, I, I'm confident he'll break out of it and he ha- sort of has to play every day. So it, the good part is if it's, if it, requires him to just take a lot of at-bats to work his way out of it. He's going to get those at-bats. Rutledge is there, but ultimately, you know, he's a live body uh, and he can always play first instead of Hanley. And if Hanley just still is a, it is a disaster, they can just rotate until one of them maybe turns it around. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that Rutledge is any sort of a challenge for him. I just think that he's somebody who's been decent against lefties over his career, so certainly an option there. But to your point about the the league taking a different approach to um, Travis Shaw, I'm not sure if I entirely agree because the numbers don't really back that up. Uh, I'm looking at his Brooks baseball page right now, and uh, the – Pitch breakdown against him, hard breaking and off speed pitches, um, really since August of last year, has been pretty much the exact same against him. It's pretty much 60% hard pitches, uh, 30, 25 to 30% breaking pitches, and then 10 to 15% off speed pitches. Uh, and that has been kind of just what they attack him with, and that hasn't changed a whole lot. It's what's changed is. Uh, his results uh, against those. So I wonder if possibly it's fatigue from playing every day. I don't know. I I wouldn't think that that would be the case because he was playing every day in the minor leagues as well. I mean, is there anything else that you can think of? Or do you think that they're approaching him differently situationally? Maybe they're using the same pitch mix, but they're throwing him these pitches in a different sequence. Well, first of all, point taken. That was that was a... Ex- that was like a Matumbo-like rejection of my <laughs> thesis. You had the numbers. Like, we didn't discuss that beforehand. You just slapped it out of thin air. That was really good. Um, and, and point taken on that, I just I, – I think I think fatigue could really be an issue. I've seen him waving at 92-mile-per-hour fastballs just as if it's – they've been blown by him. This is anecdotal. I mean, I have seen it, but uh, – I, it looks to me like uh, outside fastballs have been doing a number on him, um, and I don't know. He, I, I do think he looks worn, a little bit worn down, and over the course of a season, that could, that could easily even out. You know, ne- if he's great next month or just good then his season still aggregates to above average. And you know what? 
it's fine. You know, when you look at the line at the end of the year, if everyone was great every, you know, if everyone was good every month, they'd all be 338 hitters. But some guys just uh, go into cold streaks for reasons we can't divine. I hope that is what the case is with Shaw uh, and that this isn't fundamental. And I sort of think it isn't fundamental because to be as good as he is in the limit, still real, relatively limited amount he's played, uh, I think requires a baseline of skill that can keep him around. And I'm also biased by the fact that his dad was a baseball player because I feel like Legacy people, if you can get into the game, you can stay in the game. And if you're good, that just makes it easier. Yeah, I, I think that fatigue is an interesting uh, reason here. And I'll tell you why. Last year in 2015, um, he played 65 games with the Red Sox. And this year he's played 62 games. Over those stretches of time that are nearly identical uh, the numbers themselves are nearly identical. He had slightly more home runs last year uh, in those 65 games, 13 to, to 7. I guess that's more than slightly, but when you look at everything else, the runs, the RBIs, the, the walks, the strikeouts, the isolated power, um, the average on-base percentage, everything else is almost exactly the same uh, as it was last year. And what that does is it puts us in sort of uncharted territory now that he's passed that 62 to 65 games game area. Uh, so we're starting to see him go through the grind of a major league season. And I, I'm sure that that is different on some level from playing at AAA, um, where maybe mentally you can take a night off a little bit more than you can against uh, professional pitching. You know, you know you're going to face a starter. You know you're going to face two to three, possibly even four uh, elite level uh, relievers that are specialized just to get you out in those situations a lot of times. So um, the the thinking aspect of the game has to be uh, tremendously more exhaustive on on the player. And we're going into theoreticals here, but um, hold I wanna... on, hold on, just quickly. Yeah, yeah, go for it. God, I hate to say this. But as someone who is a, a, a certified old, like a card-carrying old, um, it's just you could sort of say definitively that, that it is a true thing that you sort you can just pick the stuff up, like, and you do, and you don't even you do in ways you don't even realize. And I think it goes for baseball players as well, especially ones who have sort of a baseline of. Um, just like competence and a presence. Uh, and I think the competence and the presence are both important. And I think Travis Shaw has the presence because he grew up around the game. You see that with a lot of people, uh, but he also has the competence. Unlike some other players, I'm thinking of Tony Gwynn Jr. Who are up against whom I have nothing, but players like that who have stuck around because of their name Shaw seems to also have competence, but there's something about the clubhouse that I think uh, is a natural fit for him. This is all projecting. It's all projecting. Right. Uh, but it's always come across that way to me. And so this slump, I feel like he would be able, be able to wear it 
like someone who has played longer, which means I think that he might come out of it, especially given that I was completely wrong about the approaches, as you told me. <laughs> well, I think that that's a good point. I mean, pedigree does does have some factor here, I think. And I think you're right. He has that attitude as to what to do in these situations. So, And by all accounts, he's an awesome teammate, just pretty much the ideal teammate here. And his defense has still been pretty good um, through this whole slump. So th- that hasn't been a disappointment either. What I wanted to ask you here um, was uh, there's been some rumors about some trades and Julio Tehran's a name that was brought up uh, on the podcast with Matt Collins and I, and one that's been brought up quite a bit. Um, it's been floated about, I can't remember where, I think maybe even on Twitter, just between me and some uh, fellow BP guys that follow the, the Braves. Um, but Shaw is a potential target for the Braves. If they wanted to center a, a trade with Tehran around Shaw, how would you feel about that? Would you be okay giving up a guy like Shaw for a guy like Tehran um, if there, you know, if it was almost equal there? Yes, in a half second, in in a in in a quarter of a second. So even though it takes from the major league roster, you think that the upgrade of Tehran would be enough, even if you had to play somebody like Josh Rutledge there on a regular basis? Absolutely. Especially, I mean, look, the Red Sox have been trying to go with a four-man rotation so they don't have to fill out their rotation with someone that they just don't want to pitch. Tehran has been really good this year. Um, I think it I, – I, I don't think that that's a realistic deal if you're talking about the bases just being one for one. I think that they would want something considerably more than that. Uh, like another uh, similar asset uh, to get Tehran because otherwise, why bother? I mean, they have the entire league's worth of suitors um, It because he's great and they will take anything. I mean, they're just, they're terrible. So um, they've been strangely adamant about their want for actual major league talent though. Isn't I mean, no, no, that, that I mean, it's weird. I mean, they're in such look. I uh, like th- what they remind me of in a weird way is the uh, the the Nets when the Nets were about to open in Brooklyn, <laughs> and I lived there, so it's in my head. But that like they had this weird and this weird detached idea of what the fans wanted in terms of the team's competence. Um, and if that's true, what you're saying, it seems like a classic example, example of that. It's like, why, why would you bother? Um, it's John Hart, man. Sometimes he makes weird choices. It's weird. Um, isn't Travis Shaw the same person as Freddie Freeman? Pretty much. He's like a third base version of Freddie Freeman with worse contact skills. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, you add the third base and you take away some contacts, a lot of contact skills. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure about that move, but it, it's certainly something that I have heard, and I want to just thank the Nets here on on air for uh, what they've given my Boston Celtics. So well, that's... here, that well, that's the thing. I mean, that would be that 
what you're discussing would be the baseball version of that. Because if they, if they, for whatever reason, want major league talent, then you go Shaw. Look, they're an, they're an NL team. Why don't you give them Shaw, Hanley, and Pablo Sandoval? <laughs> Just dump all your trash on them? What, and you get Tehran? And then what? Do they have somebody that they want to get rid of contract-wise? We'll take them. We don't care. Marcakis? I mean, I mean, you inadvertently just stumbled. I mean, first of all, yes, why not? He's the perfect extra outfielder. But Marcakis, to me, I love him so much for reason. It's just like, I've always, I've always loved Nick Marcakis, and the beard is just cinched it. There's nothing he can do to make me not like him. So that is ideal. That is perfect. Pablo, <laughs> Hanley, um, and Shaw for Tehran and Nick Marcakis. It's a wrap. <laughs> yeah, there's no way in hell that's happening. So let's just go ahead and move on to our next guy here. Um, over eight games so far in June, Jackie Bradley Jr. not looking like JBJ that we've seen earlier in the year. Um, we didn't mention him yet because he's not. it's not as big of a deal as what's happening to Hanley and Shaw at this point. But he's just batting 194 over those eight games. Um I am just so scared of regression right here, and I know it's irrational. This is like, this is like me being worried, uh, in game seven of the 2004 ALCS when the Red Sox were up by like a million runs and I still was convinced that the Yankees were going to come back. Um, I'm that convinced that Jackie Bradley Jr.'s regression is going to come in the form of like a three month cold spell where he ends up batting like 190 on the season. Um, I mean, how, how much of a concern is this right now? Well, it's not a concern to me simply because we – I think we we really want the good parts of JVJ without the bad parts. But we've seen him get hot not for as long as he was hot to begin the season. Um, and we've seen him get cold. And I think the the our, our best version of him – is that the hot streaks just get longer and the cold streaks get shorter. But the cold streaks not existing is probably not going to happen. The only positive that I've taken from this is that a bunch of his hits in the cold streaks have been home runs. So that is it that is a at least I can hear you typing. You're you're checking my assertion. Um, <laughs> definitely his last hit was a home run. Um on in the 15 run game, I believe. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, what I think is that he has proven you need to leave him in there. And because he's like the greatest, <laughs> he's like one of the greatest outfielders I've ever seen. There's no reason not to just keep him in. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, there's no other option here. He, he is staying in. There's nothing that the Red Sox can do. They just have to hope that, like you said, these cold streaks don't last as long as they used to uh, and that they're not team crippling. I, I think that uh, especially it was pretty apparent on Sunday. I was listening to the game while I was driving. I was actually driving to my brother's uh, baseball game. They just won the uh, Central Massachusetts Division One District Championship. So um, congrats right. to them. Uh, they play in the semifinals 
uh, tomorrow and then or today as you're listening to this and then hopefully in the states so congrats to st peter marion um but while i was driving the red sox you know had a chance to win when they tied up that game and jackie bradley jr came up to the plate and promptly uh struck out and in that situation i was feeling so many mixed things because at this point in the season we've seen him do unbelievable things the 29 game hit streak and part of me was thinking all right like this is it this is the game he's going to come in deliver and then Kimbrell's going to close it out and then part of me was like uh i remember watching this guy just flail at pitches uh in the fact that he did end up flailing at that one and you know the red Sox end up losing the game uh just really is concerning to me so we're gonna have to just wait this thing out and see what happens but um if what pitchers around baseball are saying about Jackie Bradley Jr. Uh, is true, then he is a changed player. I don't know if you had a chance to read it, but uh, Ryan Wyatt's uh, article um, at um, Vice um, about Jackie Bradley Jr. was pretty incredible. And I think he was talking to Roberto Ozuna in there and asked him about his at-bats uh, with JBJ, and he was just like, that dude is unbelievable. Like, what an amazing hitter. Like, guy who just haunts him. Um, so I, I thought that was really interesting from one of the better relief pitchers in all of baseball. Yeah, I uh, I have noticed, I've still noticed that even as he has um, uh, floundered a little bit uh, results-wise, is that he he gets treated now like a um like like a heavy hitter when the pitcher is not going through the order saying oh jackie bradley's up now i'm gonna you know take it easy uh it he's caused people to labor now the one the the one thing he does is that He's so good at drawing long counts, and I think that's what Ozuna is talking about generally. But the other thing he's good at is hitting the first pitch. So he's good at these two totally different skills. He's some of the ones in between, like he can strike out, and he has been doing that a bunch recently. But um, he uh, he can hit the first pitch, but he can also draw the count to ball four. I think that is the essence of sort of what Ozuna was likely getting at. Mm. You're dealing with two opposite skill sets in the same player. Um, and that, that just makes it hard for a pitcher. So I'm going to give you a, a bit of a question here. If you had to project forward, whether or not Jackie Bradley Jr. ends up being a nice player for the Red Sox or one of the core three players that makes up the future of this club with Xander Bogarts uh, and uh, Mookie Betts. I mean, which which future do you think is is more realistic for him at this point? Look, because he's so good at defense, he can stick around any baseball team as long as he can hit. Um, if the Red Sox can sign him for reasonable rates, they could keep him forever. But he could also just bounce around the league if his hitting levels off at, say, 
you know what? His hitting would have to really go down for the Red Sox to have incentive to let him go. Uh, He'd have to go down, like, tremendously. He'd have to become, like, a 220 hitter consistently. Yeah, because his on-base skills are so good. So I think that there's a good chance that he's around here for a while and that, like, him, Bogarts, and Betts could be uh, – look, I've heard Yankees fans say it. Like, uh, you know, it's a new core four. You get uh, you get those three guys, and you get uh, Andy or Blake, Stephen Wright. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Stephen Wright at, at thirty or thirty-one, whatever he is, thirty years old. Look for a knuckleballer. He probably has. He's he's probably just at least, he probably no, he doesn't have as many years as X and Mookie. Those guys are so young. God, this is great. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty sweet every time you think about it. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I I think I I I lean more towards him being a realistic part of that conversation where we're talking about the three best players on the Red Sox, and every time we talk about Xander and Mookie, we also have to mention Jackie. I think that's more of who he is as a player than than the cold streaks. I think he's going to continue to evolve into that. Uh, I do think he is a special player. So hopefully that is what ends up happening. But that's it. But so I remember, I know we're already going long, but I, I remember a few years ago, I'm a few years, like eight years ago, I was at a, just an apartment in, uh, in New York with a friend of mine and his, he had a friend there who was a Yankees fan. And I was trying to extol the virtues of Jacoby Ellsbury. And this was before the big year. I mean, I think this was very early on during that big year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's like, oh, of course you're a Red Sox fan. Of course you say Jacoby Ellsbury is good. And I'm like, dude, there are only so many people in the world who are good enough to play baseball and just go out there every day and play it. And I feel that way about Jackie Bradley Jr. Like that dude should be playing baseball, Major League Baseball every day because that dude is good. Um, and that that's why I hope they keep him around for a while because that's a really – it's really nice thing to root for. Yeah, he certainly makes the absurd look routine. So that is nice, no matter the outcome of the game, every time. Um, I want to talk some Farrell here, because he has made a few questionable choices lately. Um, you mentioned a few of them with, you know, Shaw bunting. Um, well, I guess just one of them so far. But one of the big ones I wanted to ask you about was the decision to not play Ortiz at first base uh, in San Francisco over that two-game set. I understand that you want to give Ortiz rest, um, but with Hanley going as bad as he has and there being precedent for Ortiz playing first base, and he's not terrible. Like, he's he's fine, and he's leading baseball in RBIs right now. He's right up there in OPS. I mean, the guy's a monster. Uh, how do you not play that guy against a guy like Madison Bumgarner? Well... Well, here's the thing. I can see why you don't pitch him against Baumgartner because I know he's poppy, but look, as far as easy games to rest David Ortiz on the West Coast against an NL team, against one of the great pitchers in the game who happens to be basically a submariner lefty, I get that. I mean, honestly, I get that. I do agree with you. 
um, that Poppy is a lot better in the field than people give him credit for. Uh, maybe because he's playing first base, as we saw with Hanley, we sort of underestimated what Hanley could do at first base, but it's because maybe a first base is not that hard. Um, I, uh, I think John Farrell is very, very much into sort of like the bureaucracy and the levels at which the people in the clubhouse exist and what they are entitled to and also um, when they are not to play. He, I feel like he has a schedule and he sticks to it. Uh, this gets into Kimbrell not coming into games in the extra innings when he's not in a safe situation. Uh, but it also comes into effect when you're talking about Ortiz not playing and you say Hanley's not hitting well. But I feel like he says Hanley is our first baseman, so he's going to play the games. Uh, you know, he'll get days off, but when our DH, normal DH can't play because of the uh, being in the NO, Hanley's just going to play because he is our first baseman. Um, I hate that approach, though. I, I know. Well, I, I, I'm not telling you you have to like it. I'm just saying I think that's what his approach is. Don't you think that there's an element of that that's really bad for a clubhouse, though? Because let me just give you an example, or not an example here, but just sess it out a little bit. Um, one of the, the issues that I think you can have when you are so rigid in the way that Farrell is, and I think that he... He is really rigid. I think you kind of hit that nail on the head there. Um, there's an there's an element of uh, being dynamic that really helps a baseball team, and I don't think there's any better time to start experimenting with putting guys in at times or situations where they might not be 100% comfortable or used to coming into the game. Um, there's no better time to experiment with that than when you are winning baseball games. And the Red Sox have had ample opportunities uh, this year in order to try some of these things out. And I think that they can only pay dividends for you uh, later in the year, especially as you're in the playoffs and there, there, there are times when you need to use guys in, in odd situations. And if all season long you're not doing that and then all of a sudden playoff time comes around and you're using guys in you know innings that they're not used to pitching or uh, pinch hitting for guys that, you know, aren't usually used to being in that spot. I think that the shock of that can make guys unsuccessful. So I think one of the best in-game managers, and he gets maybe too much credit, is is Joe Madden. But he's sort of famous for uh, putting guys all over the place. And I think that that really serves a baseball team in the long run. Well, I do have to give you a counterexample because I am a contrarian. And as I also complained about this, and I was proven wrong. I mean, look at how much Farrell forced Chris Young into the lineup, even against righties early in the season. And Chris Young has been incredible this year for us. I mean, he's been really, really good uh, outside, if you take away the first couple weeks. Now, a lot of that was against righties, and that was, a lot of that is when he was forcing it. But there are the the only I'm I don't disagree with you. But what I'm saying is that the there is a flip side to it. That like it can also work out for good if you have it in your idea that Chris Young is your fourth outfielder and that just sort of if you're 
tabulating everything, your fourth outfielder needs to get X amount of playing time, regardless of who it's against. Um, So it does cut both ways. I do think it cuts more (laughs) toward, even if he did well, playing Chris Young less against righties and throwing Craig Kimbrell more than you throw Matt Barnes. Yeah, I I see both sides of it. I definitely do, and I, you know, I'm still gonna side with myself there, but I, <laughs> I I do I do see the point, and I do take it. Well, uh, I have to respect. I mean, I have to respect that, of course. Yeah, I mean, you do you, bro. <laughs> I have to, just like Sandy Leone, who does him to the tune of four out of five hits in his first game playing for the Sox this season. So, I thought uh, it was. Look, I thought it was four out. Of, oh, but no, but you say four out of five hits because the other one was a walk, right? Right. So right. So uh, he came up on uh, Sunday. He has fi- he came up as five for five, uh-huh. and uh, so at that point in the game, it was very strange. I have MLB TV because I live in the New York metropolitan area. Right. Um, and all, so I have the radio feeds and the TV feeds and everything, but the twins video feed all were just stuck on the moment that Pat Dean was taken out of the game. So every time I went to those feeds went back. So I was watching the twins feed and it said Sandy Leon's batting average was 1.00, and he had a long at bat, and so it was just up there the whole time because yeah. they just hadn't accounted for four digits, and it looked so ridiculous. It was just it's a it's another thing in baseball you don't know what you're going to see. Like it's such a small thing, but it was hilarious because you'll never see that again. Yeah, it was particularly funny to me how successful he was because uh, I don't know if you get a chance to listen to the last episode, but. Matt Collins and I were talking about him, and I just expressed my irrational love for Sandy Leon. That, like, for some reason, I'm just convinced he's a great hitter. And I looked at the stats when we were on the podcast, and he is not a great hitter. And I really couldn't even pull out anything that he's been really good at. But we just decided that for some reason I like Sandy Leon. And, um, yeah, that was pretty cool. So. I was pumped about that, but what I wasn't pumped about, and it'll be the last point that we talk about before we get into what the Red Sox are going to be doing over the next week, is just uh, the bullpen. We let off the show with talking about how much rest the bullpen's been getting over this uh, little span where the Red Sox have had three days off, but over the last 14 days, um, only three players in the uh, Red Sox bullpen, Koji, Kimbrell, and uh, Heath Hembry, have ERAs under four. Uh, Buckholtz, Tazawa, Ross, Barnes, and uh, Tommy Lane have not fared so well. Um, and if you put that all the way out to 30 days, uh, it doesn't look a whole lot better for a lot of these guys. Um, Tommy Lane, ERA over seven over that period of time. Buckholtz approaching seven. Uihara over five. Uh, Matt Barnes right up at just about four ERA. Tazawa's just about four. Um, so really, I mean, Hembry and Kimbrell have been far and away your most reliable relievers over the last 30 days. And uh, those guys, uh, they, they just can't do it on their own. And I'm legitimately concerned about the bullpen at this point, especially Uihara, Barnes, and Tazawa, uh, guys that are going to be used in huge spots quite frequently. Well, I think that the usage might have to change. Because 
this is uh, this is another piece of evidence that you never know what's going to happen in baseball because coming into the season, we would have said the Red Sox bullpen was equal to, if not better than the Yankees. And now it's like the only thing the Yankees can do is have this amazing bullpen. Um, and the Red Sox have – they can barely keep it together with pieces of tape. Uh, it's – I mean, losing Carson Smith was obviously terrible, but <sighs> it's just rough. Um, the Whatever they do in terms of moves, they just got to get pitchers. I mean, that's it. That I think that's the – the simple solution and at least there are often relievers available because that is it's already destroying them and it's in in early june yeah it's it doesn't look good i think tommy lane just has to go i know he doesn't pitch a whole lot he's only pitched six innings over the last 30 days but he's just not an effective pitcher we've talked about this before but you, you have to be pretty concerned with uh, Koji here and how he's looked. He just has not looked very sharp as of late. And Matt Barnes seems to have regressed a little bit. So I wonder, I mean, what do the Red Sox do in the meantime? Do you think that they turn to some of those arms um, down uh, at Pawtucket? You know, Anthony Vivaro is a name that comes to mind. Uh, Pat Light, maybe give him another chance. At least get some other people in there to can serve uh, Tozawa uh, and, and Koji, who seem to be getting fatigued as of late. And maybe they even go to some of the guys down at, at AA. I don't know what they do, but relievers are going to be expensive to uh, to get at the deadline because everybody needs them. Yeah, but you know what? We're in first place, and we have the money. Um, the I'm not surprised with Tozawa and, and Koji just – falling off their older, you know, it's going to happen. Um, it, the thing with Pat Light is that <laughs> I feel like if, when you throw as hard as he does, if he's not in the majors, there's got to be a good reason for it. Right. Uh, so it's, it's, it seems sort of, it's tough. I, I think that, the, you know, the, I still think Koji is good. I, I still think that he is ultimately above average. And Kimbrell's great. But uh, with the offense they have, maybe they can just muddle through. That's, that's my hope. That's not a good hope, but that's my hope. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, I don't know. It's going to be something to watch. I, I just can't. I can't talk about it anymore because I don't know what to what to say about it. I really just don't. I think you got to try and rest him as much as you possibly can. Um, I think this is a good thing that that's that's happened to those guys. But maybe you give Vivaro a shot and let Matt Barnes rest for a little while. But other than that, you're gonna have to look outside the organization if you want to improve. And Tazawa has been good, but you know he he gets tired, so it's gonna be a concern. Um, Let's get Fernando Rodney. Let's just do it. Oh, I want no part of that. I know. I don't. I 
truthfully, I do not want it either. Only if um, I can get the Fernando Rodney from the uh, World Baseball Classic. That's what I want. I want him in a full Dominican uniform and dancing. You know, I went to the first uh, World Baseball Cl- Classic semifinals and finals, and the semifinal game, Japan-Korea, was the best baseball game. It was the – I'm sorry. It was the hypest baseball game I've ever been to. Really? The Korean fans were so crazy. It was awesome. Were they and, crazier than the Japanese fans? Yes, but then Ichiro went five for five, and oh. uh, Japan knocked them out, and they weren't so crazy anymore. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a blast. I would love to go to something like that. Um, so let's talk about the uh, upcoming schedule for the Red Sox. They start a 10-game homestand coming up. Um, they're going to have Baltimore and Seattle this week, and then followed by – uh, those two is going to be Chicago White Sox coming into town. But uh, the first seven games of that series, or six games, I should say, are uh, against Baltimore and Seattle. Uh, the matchups are as follows. Uh, against Baltimore, we've got Price versus Timlin. Or <laughs> Tillman. <laughs> Tillman! Yeah, Mike Tillman coming back to pitch against the Red Sox. Uh, that, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that that dates me a little bit. I don't know. But, yeah, Price versus Tillman. Um, Wright versus Wilson and uh, Eddie versus uh, Gosman. So some pretty good matchups there. Uh, Price versus Tillman's pretty intriguing to me um, because Price hasn't been great and Tillman actually has been really great so far this season. Who do you give the advantage to there? Price because as a Chris Tillman owner in fantasy, uh, I am uh, – familiar with his tendency to pitch very well except for when he's giving up home runs and Fenway Park is a good place to give up home runs and the Red Sox are a good team to give up home runs against and David Price is really good I know the Orioles are great too but I'm going with David Price I'm going to take the opposite on this and uh, hopefully our listeners don't kill me for it but I just think Tillman's on a roll right now and Price has not looked great still I'm just not totally sold on uh, his performance so far. I know he sprinkled in a few good ones, but Baltimore's a tough lineup, and he's been giving up a lot of doubles. And that park is not great for it. Wow, wow. Yep. Ye, ye of, and look, I I was I'm writing a price article for what will be today when anyone hears this. Price check. Uh, Price check. Nice. But it, it's it's yeah. You should say that, but it's tough. I mean, it's it's he hasn't made it easy. It's 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 tough to dive into the stuff week after week. Anyhow, let's go. Let's go. Let's move away from it. Uh, all right. So Stephen Wright versus Tyler Wilson. Um, this one's a no-brainer for the both of us. I'm sure we're both taking yes. Wright. Yep. Uh, Eddie versus Gosman. This is very intriguing. Um, few reasons right off the bat. Gosman's been better this season. Eddie, in his last start, even though he struggled and he did fall victim to the long ball, did have his velocity up. So some good things are happening on that front. If these guys were both completely healthy in a perfect world, I think this is, you know, maybe slightly advantage Eddie here. I think I give the slight edge to Gosman uh, in this situation, but... Uh, Eddie can put it together here. Possible. It's his old team. I totally agree with your assessment 100% that Eddie could do it, 
but as of right now, you have to give it to Gosman. Yep, just playing too good. Like 55% to 45%, but just it's it's a solidly 55% on Gossman's side. I still think he's too heavy on that fastball, but, you know, the, that LSU baseball factory over there uh, has produced some pretty good ones. So Gosman, he's a nice little player. Uh, next matchup we've got against Seattle, uh, second place in the West. Um, actually playing pretty well this season. Have have a pretty pretty potent lineup, one of the best home run hitting teams uh, in the league. But we've got Rick Porcello versus James Paxton, who looked really good uh, last time out. Uh, Rick didn't look great. He only ended up giving up one earned in that sort of debacle of a weird game uh, on on Sunday. Uh, who do you give the advantage to here? James Paxton. I agree. He's a lefty. He's- He's been, re- I mean, he's been really good this year. Yeah. And for a team that hits a lot of home runs, look, if Porcello's on, if he's on his 90th percentile game, doesn't matter if you hit home runs, he can get you on the ground balls and he can strike you out. But if he's not, the one thing he's susceptible to is getting taken a yard. Uh, and if a team is that is a team specialty, that's a bad combination. I've always really liked like Paxton. In fact, when the big three prospects over there, Paxton, Taiwan Walker, who we'll talk about in a second, and then uh, the kid from UVA who hurt himself, uh, blanking on his name right now, he was maybe even more highly touted than either of those guys. Uh, he ended up blowing up like his shoulder and his arm and stuff. But I always really liked Paxton's package. He's just six foot four lefty, 235 pounds. Looks like he should be a horse, but seems to consistently get injured. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm just thrown off by you saying you like his package. And I'm trying to think of like the <laughs> like the gen like the gender norms. Like, at what level is it funny? Um, what am I allowed to talk about that? Uh, let's just move right through this because I don't know anything about anything except for the Red Sox. Um, I think we agree that Paxton is the better choice. All right. Price against Wade Miley. This one, I'll put my faith on Price. Yeah, me too. And then lastly, uh, right against Taiwan Walker, which should be a really good pitching matchup because Taiwan's been pretty good himself this year and uh, Wright's the man. Yeah, this is a really, really cool one because this is – the, the the battle of the guy who sort of came out of nowhere and is, and is legitimately having a good year. Not It's not smoke and mirrors. I think we can agree that Stephen Ray is actually good. Against the blue chipper who's finally putting it together for the most part, uh, it's it's a great uh, – it's a great matchup. I'm going to say that Walker has the advantage simply because – at his best, he can take out a red, a, a pitcher of his ultimate talent level, uh, the peak of it, can really destroy anyone. Uh, and while a knuckleballer can obviously take out anyone, if a knuckleballer isn't quite as good, he can also just get slapped around the building. So uh, it's it's like a 51 to 49 thing, but I'm going to go with Walker. I'm going to say huge advantage right here because – Wow. Taiwan Walker is a mental weakling. Wow. 
He is. I've oh, I've watched. Here's a, here's this is a real question. Starts. This is a real question. Yeah. Do you have any idea if Marco Estrada is like some sort of mental Hercules? And the only reason I choose him specifically is he's pitched against the Red Sox twice this year, at least. <laughs> I've watched two games. And during those games, it looks like the Red Sox are like deers. They're deer in headlights. They can't – like they can barely even take the bats off their shoulder. Uh, look, I know – but here, here's the thing about Taiwan. I think he's 24. Yeah, he's still super young. 23, yeah. So uh, I, I get you. I mean I feel like it's a coin flip, so – I don't. I don't blame you. I'm just going off gut here. I've just seen too much of Taiwan Walker, and I've seen him in big situations, and he just seems to crumble to bits. He's the type of guy that when he goes out against a team like Milwaukee or somebody like that, he's just gonna wipe the floor with them. But uh, when he's actually expected to perform, he typically doesn't. So you know, I love your mean streak against players. I look, and I don't mean this as in like. I don't understand it. I used to have mean streaks against players. I just don't care anymore. <laughs> there you go. This is the evolution of what happens. Uh, yeah, exactly. I like, I for too yeah. many years. Um, yeah, that'll be interesting to see. But Marco Estrada, he's not even just a beast against the Red Sox. He's just a beast this year. Yeah, I was looking for he's price check. Flat good. For price check, I was looking up all the uh, the DRAs because – us on baseball perspectives. We're told to use the baseball perspective stats. Um, and it should be noted that Price's DRA is much better than Wright's um, this year. Uh, as is his uh, as is his warp, it, it's it's much higher. Um, it it's a lot higher than you would expect. So that's what I'm writing about for today. Uh, so that will be on the internet at the same time as this. All right. Well, perfect. We'll be looking for it there. Um, Brian, where can they find you on Twitter if they want to give you a follow? Find me at, at Barack Obama. Um, that's President of the United States. At POTUS? At, yes, at POTUS, at POTUS. At Brian Joyner. That's Brian with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N-J-O-I-N-E-R. All right. You can uh, follow the host over at Dev uh, – What? what's my Twitter? Uh at Dev Jake. Yeah, that's it. Um, I don't even know my own Twitter handle anymore, so that goes to show you where I am. Um, but more importantly, you can uh, subscribe to our podcast uh, on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, and some other audio outlets that we undoubtedly appear on. Uh, those are the two main ones, though. Uh, feel free to rate and review us as well. We always appreciate that, and we want to hear anything that we can do better. Uh, on the show as well and uh, if that means being nicer to players which I'm sure nobody wants or if that means more talk about Marco Scudero for some reason then we'll give it to you so um, Brian that's all I've got man anything else uh, no I'm going to tell you a Marco Scudero anecdote after we cut this uh, recording alright see you, you guys don't get that so uh, too bad to be you thanks for listening bye